I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I've decided to do a new podcast. This one will be called Brown People, a podcast where I speak to politicians, pundits, mothers, and thinkers about discovering the stories of people of colour. I'll be your host as we dive into the lives of thoughtful individuals who have maybe courted controversy but have definitely lived a life worth talking about. We'll be talking about the struggles, the triumphs and everything in between as we hear the experiences of people from all over the globe. We'll be getting to the root of what drives them, how they see the world and how the world sees them and how they've overcome the obstacles that life has thrown in their way. This is a podcast that will be an exploration and a conversation. So join us as we shine a light on the stories, struggles, and we look at the lives of people of colour. Please subscribe to it today, whether you're a brown person or not. Hello, Royfield here. Now, before we start the show, I need to warn you that one of our speakers, uh, their audio is not that clear. It's it's Corleys who came in at the last moment to be our point person to talk about the week's news, Boris Johnson's resignation, um, he came in quite literally at the last minute. He came into the room and I dragged him up on stage. He does an excellent job explaining uh, the reasons for Boris Johnson's jump before he was pushed by the Ethics Committee, by the Parliamentary Ethics Committee. However, as I said, his audio isn't that clear. Please bear with it. It does get slightly better towards the end. Enjoy the show. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown, who is sat in Tallinn in Estonia. If you want to go for a relatively cheap European break, I can't recommend this town enough. It is charming, it is lovely, and I'm here to discover it. But I'm also sat looking at a topic which is so mid-Atlantic. It is a perfect time to compare and contrast the machinations which are going on in the US and those that are going on in, in the UK, specifically populist leaders and their ousting, as we would say in Britain, or ouster, 
as you say, in the US. In the UK, Boris Johnson, the ex-Prime Minister, has resigned. And the Tory party seems to be pretty much saying, good riddance, Boris. We have a general election in the next year, and you do not help matters. Now, that is not to say that there is some level of infighting within the Tory party, but this is in stark contrast to our American cousins, where there is Donald Trump, there, the Republican Party's populist leader, who has a whole level of political and legal machinations against him, but he is soldiering on, and many Republicans are still at least pledging some level of fealty towards him. So today we're going to talk about what is so different about right of centre politics in the US and right of centre politics in the UK and how they can deal with the populist leaders in such contrasting ways. Now, first off, before we introduce our first guest, which is Steve Prone, who is a good friend of the podcast, he is a law professor and he did clerk at the Supreme Court in his younger days. I need to let you into a secret, dear listener. I have screwed up. We're supposed to have had Mick Wright, an excellent friend of the podcast, with us as well. But i completely forgotten that I'm in Europe and there is a two-hour time difference from the UK. I've given him the wrong time. I have sent him a message. So we should have had a British political journalist, Mick Wright, with us to add colour to the British side of the equation. But Steve Crone, I'm going to start with you. But first, let's listen to a news clip about Donald Trump this week. A turning point in U.S. history. Former President Donald Trump departing the courthouse as a federal criminal defendant after pleading not guilty to a 37-count felony indictment, accused by the special counsel of mishandling classified documents and obstructing efforts to retrieve them. Today we witness the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the history of our country. This is called election interference. Mr. Trump himself is facing an election interference investigation in Georgia for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. He has denied any wrongdoing. During his 47-minute arraignment, the former president sat stone-faced with arms crossed next to his lawyers and co-defendant Walt Nada, his personal body man. Mr. Trump's lawyer, Todd Blanche, entered a plea of not guilty. The judge did not impose any travel restrictions, but did direct prosecutors to put together a list of people with whom Mr. Trump would not be allowed to discuss the case, including Nada, whose arraignment has been delayed for two weeks while he works to hire local counsel. The surreal spectacle continued with the motorcade headed to Miami's Little Havana neighborhood for what appeared to be a planned pep rally at the famed Versailles restaurant. And food for everyone. Food for everyone. The former president, with Walt Nada close by, greeting supporters, singing happy birthday to Mr. Trump, who turns 77 today. Steve, it's somewhat confusing to try and keep up with the various legal perils that are engulfing Donald Trump at the moment. But could you just give us the background to the indictment this week and tell us why Many people think this is maybe the most serious incident which he's facing before running to be president again in 2024. This indictment involves the records that were taken from the White House when Trump left office and the National Archives attempts to get them back, which were protracted and unsuccessful and ultimately led to the FBI coming into his hotel in Florida to get them back. 
after about a seven-month investigation by a special counsel that was appointed by the attorney general, the, the government has issued this 37-count indictment. 31 of the count are for what's called willful retention of national defense information, taking documents that you're not authorized to have and then refusing to give them back when a duly authorized person from the government says you need to give them back. And the government has named 31 specific documents. I would say there are fairly obviously more than 31, but they've chosen 31 specific documents. That's 31 counts of the indictment. And then there are five additional counts that all have to do with obstructing the investigation. Conspiracy to obstruct justice, withholding a document or record, that's in the context of an investigation, corruptly concealing a document in a federal investigation, scheme to conceal. These are all various charges having to do with moving the documents around, hiding them, various attempts to obstruct the efforts of the government to get them back and to investigate the crime. And then his valet, Nada, who was mentioned in your clip, is also charged with making false statements to the government. He was questioned in connection with the investigation and allegedly made some false statements. The key fact there is that toward the end of this whole episode, Trump was going to have one of his attorneys come down to Florida to review the documents and find documents that needed to be returned, identify classified documents, etc. Shortly before he came down to Florida to review the boxes, the indictment alleges Trump instructed Nada to move about 65 boxes from the location that they were at. And they had been moved around Mar-a-Lago regularly over this period. Ballrooms, bathroom, really quite bizarre. In any event, the boxes were moved to a new location, reviewed apparently, and then only about half of those boxes were put in a place for the lawyer to review. The other half the lawyer never saw. And then when Nada was questioned about that, he claimed that he didn't know how the boxes got from place to place. And so he's also charged with making false statements. It appears that on the face of it, this is a slam dunk. There is not only the fact that there is the correspondence that the National Archive was asking for this material back. The material was then found at Mar-a-Lago. But there also there's another bit of damning evidence. Is there, There's some kind of taped recording of Trump. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Steve? You might be referring to several different kinds of recordings, some semi-private, non-private, but some at Mar-a-Lago, some public statements. Two of the things that the special counsel, I think, has tried to establish in the indictment is that Trump clearly knew that the documents were national security documents that he shouldn't have and or shouldn't be showing to anyone. And so there are a bunch of public statements that Trump made going back as far as his first campaign for president, talking about the importance of national security documents, often in the context of claiming that Hillary Clinton had mishandled security documents. And then there were also some of the private reportings of him 
at Mar-a-Lago talking about the documents with people that he was socializing with there. In one case, he had a document in his hand, apparently, according to the recording, that he was waving around and showing to them. I believe there's another incident where he may have been showing one to a writer. He was talking to a writer about how he had these documents and he really shouldn't be talking about it. He can't show them to him. So there's plenty of evidence that he knew that they were national security documents and that he knew he wasn't supposed to have them. One other thing I guess I would say there, there's been a lot of talk about whether they were classified, what classification did the president have the ability to automatically declassify documents by thinking in his head that he was declassifying him, declassifying them. And what I would say about that is nothing in the indictment in any way relies on any of the documents being classified or having any particular classification. The willful retention statute deals with national security material, and that can be material that is classified or not classified. So nothing legally turns on whether any of the documents had any particular classification or any classification at all. How is this going to potentially impact on the presidential election in terms of just the timing of the case? And then what exactly is the most severe term that Trump could get if he's found guilty? I think how the timing of the procedure is going to affect the election remains to be seen. Trump was arraigned yesterday. I think we just don't know the answer to that. It is possible and... In my opinion, it may even be likely that there won't be any trial until after the election. There's a number of pre-trial motions that would need to happen. The judge has very great control over the pace and what happens. The federal court in Miami operates under a rocket docket, which is an internal set of rules which are designed to make trials move quickly. But this is extraordinary, and whether or not those rules will be followed here is hard to say. In addition, I guess this would be the time to note that the judge that's been assigned to the case, and this is not the judge who presided over the arraignment yesterday, is the same judge who made rulings about access to the documents when the FBI seized them. These were rulings that were highly favorable to Trump, very bizarre, and were overturned on appeal. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals chastised the judge for making rulings which really had no basis, and the very same judge is now presiding over the trial. That's not to say that she'll continue to make the same kind of rulings, but that's certainly possible, and she would have great latitude to delay the trial. So... It could be that there's just some motion practice and we don't even see a trial until after the election. That's certainly possible. So there is the legal jeopardy that Donald Trump, former president of the US, is in. But what I think is fascinating is now to look at Boris Johnson, ex-British prime minister, a similarly populist like Trump, but how he has now resigned from being a member of parliament or an MP, and then how the Conservative Party have basically bid him adieu. 
with a scathing attack on those investigating him over Partygate. Boris Johnson tonight quit as an MP. A day after it emerged, he received a parliamentary report into whether he misled MPs. The former PM accused the Privileges Committee of driving him out with one extraordinary swipe after another. He labelled the committee a kangaroo court and claimed he was a victim of a witch hunt. Two resignations which present a new headache for Rishi Sunak and will likely reopen divisions within the Conservative Party. It is nine months since Boris Johnson left Downing Street and now tonight he's leaving Parliament altogether. In an extraordinary thousand-word statement, the former Prime Minister accused the Privileges Committee of trying to drive him out of Parliament. Their purpose from the beginning has been to find me guilty, regardless of the facts. This is the very definition of a kangaroo court, he said. I am not alone in thinking that there is a witch hunt underway to take revenge for Brexit. He finished by saying, it is very sad to be leaving Parliament, at least for now. But above all, I am bewildered and appalled that I can be forced out anti-democratically by a committee chaired and managed by Harriet Harman with such egregious bias. That committee has been investigating Boris Johnson for more than a year. I'm really struck, Cole, is that the language of that is very Trumpian. It's all about Boris Johnson being a victim, a witch hunt, etc. But first, catch us up, as our American cousins would say, with the reasons why uh, the Privilege Committee were investigating Boris Johnson. Look, I have one thing to that. Is the statement is also filled with lies. But in terms of catching up, as I view of everything, Johnson was caught red-handed by the police and, and he was fined for engaging in certain parties, events, things that, events that basically contravened his own laws that he brought in with the government during COVID in terms of restricting number of people in one place, restricting the number of people from different households in one place, those rules are slightly different, whether it was a social setting or a work setting. But either way, he, along with Rishi Sudak and a number of other people, actually Downing Street was the most fined address for the whole of the pandemic in terms of number of fines meted out to people for essentially breaking the law when it came to restrictions on meeting. So yeah, so he got fined for that. There were also a number of other events which other people got fined for which he didn't get fined for, for other events so the, this whole sort of party gate is actually the umbrella under which it all goes there were a number of events where people were fined and found to have broken rules etc 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 when it came to this investigation for the privileges committee which is a subcommittee of the house of commons which has seven mps four of them being conservatives three of them being labor bear that in mind when you hear talk of bias because there is a conservative majority on that committee so that committee then was charged with investigating whether after all of these events slash parties slash gatherings came to light, whether it was established that he told the house mistruths or he lied to the house. Their quest, the question they had to answer was whether he did it essentially knowingly, then they changed it to recklessly. But essentially, it was a case of, okay, we've established that he didn't exactly tell us the truth. Did he do it? recklessly did he do it maliciously did he do it deliberately that was what they were charged with investigating that investigation started last year it's literally finished today in terms of it be the report being signed off but the report and the investigation was finished a couple of weeks ago and Boris Johnson was handed a report clearly the report found him 
just guilty isn't exactly the wrong word because it's not a court, but for want of a better word, guilty of recklessly misleading the House of Commons, which is a pretty serious offence. And that was the reason why he resigned. He's essentially jumped. Essentially, what that report will show is that they have found him to have recklessly misled the House of Commons. Therefore, there will be the follow-up action then would be a vote of the entire House of Commons on the report, essentially co-signing it and also co-signing whatever sanction would be there. It's likely that the sanction would be a suspension from the House of Commons for, I think, either 10 or 20 days. Either way, whatever it is, that then, if agreed on by the whole House of Commons, would then precipitate a by-election in his constituency, which he is unlikely to win. Therefore, he would be unlikely to remain an MP. Hence, he's left, despite all of the bluster in that statement, which I've said before, and I stand by, full of lies and mysteries, Despite all of that, it would be essentially down to his constituents, so very democratic, as opposed to it being, quote-unquote, anti-democratic, as he put it. It would be down to his constituents in the final analysis as to whether he would remain an MP or not. Fantastic summary, and a summary which I couldn't have given. But whether he was going to be pushed, or whether he just jumped before he was pushed, has reopened wounds in the Conservative Party, hasn't it? So could you quickly explain, to the best of your ability, the the Prime Minister's resignation honours list and how that has ignited the war now between Sunak and Johnson? Every outgoing Prime Minister gets the privilege slash opportunity to present a number of names for honours, different honours. So they would range from MBEs, OBEs, CBEs, or knighthoods, so that's all under the umbrella of the Order of the British Empire, or other honours such as being elevated to the House of Lords, so becoming a lord or a lady. So he had his resignation honours, as they call it. Liz Truss will also presumably have submitted some, which will be another controversy coming down the line, I'm sure, in the next few months. But yes, he submitted his list of names for people he wanted to honour. Typically, it's been reported very much along the lines of it being sort of him honouring people, loyalists, maybe people who people don't quite think deserve honours. I think, whilst I think some of the names on that list are egregious, I think it is important to bear in mind and keep in perspective that all Prime Ministers do this and all Prime Ministers are going to put names forward for people who are loyalists and are loyal to them. That's just British politics. It's a separate question of whether you think there should be a resignation honours at all. Put that to one side. Some of the names in his list yeah, raised a number of eyebrows. I get I was gonna say it's harder to pick out which one is the most egregious. For me, it's probably the fact that his own father was on the list. Stanley Johnson down for a knighthood. Yes, his father was involved in politics back in the day in terms of in Europe. I think he was an MEP. Apparently he was quite progressive when it came to green issues back in the day too. To me that's completely irrelevant. I don't care how much merit it has. The fact that it's your son nominating you for me stinks call me naive but I think the appearance of propriety matters as well as propriety itself so that was on the list but there were other names on there as well a parliamentary hairdresser was on the list wait a minute the parliamentary hairdresser was on the list for an honour and this is famously by a politician who has unkempt hair yes irony upon irony yes (laughs) there were a couple of other people on there assistants of his both in Parliament and then in, when he was Prime Minister in, in Number 10. 
One was a 29-year-old special advisor. She is now going to be a baroness. But she's essentially going to be raised to the House of Lords, which is a position for life in the upper house. It's a position for life in a life peerage. So it's a, essentially a 29-year-old special advisor who is essentially straight out of university, basically has been a parliamentary assistant to various MPs over the past sort of six, seven years. And that is essentially that person's CV. Not to be outdone, somebody else who I think is 31, similar, another guy is in his number 10 office. He's been raised, he's been made a lord. Again, position for life in Parliament. So those are just some of the names which caused the most eyebrow-raising responses. And also, there were a couple of MPs. Lady Doris was on the list. She was going to be raised to the House of Lords. Somebody who, in any other government in the entirety of British history, would never see the door of the cabinet. She's not unique in that. There were other people in his cabinet who I am convinced, under any other prime minister, past, present, or future, would never see the cabinet table. So she was on there. Essentially, there were a couple of sitting MPs who were on there. Now, what would happen is, if you're a sitting MP and you're being raised to the House of Lords, you would have to resign as being an MP, because obviously you can't sit in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Problem is, that would then raise the spectre of by-elections. Conservatives are not doing very well in the polls. They would be likely to, if not lose those by-elections, they would be very close-running things. So it would just cause more headaches for the current government. Now, Corleys, considering that you didn't know you were going to be dragged upon stage to be the point person to explain British politics, 10 out of 10, sir, you've given us a, a whole level of detail. So again, thank you for coming to to rescue the room, uh, at least the British half of, of the room. As you pointed out, this is going to trigger three by-elections of which this is not going to put the government technically in peril because they have such a big majority, but it's going to show exactly how unpopular the Conservative Party is and it's going to massively weaken it before the next general election, which should happen in the next 12 months or so. Is that a neat summary? Yes, it will expose what people already know, that obviously everybody can read polls, that they're down in the polls, but actually having an election to rubber stamp that, could, yeah, it, it's embarrassing. So take, for example, Nadine Doris's seat. Her seat, she's got 23,000 majority. So she's unlikely to lose that seat, but that majority is very likely going to be slashed by a long way. And just to put it in perspective, most constituencies in the UK, most constituencies are, what is it, about 80,000 in terms of, between eighty and 100,000 in terms of the constituency total. If you've got a majority of 23,000, that's massive, that's huge. But if you took off from 23,000 down to 10,000, it's going to look really bad. So if I'm a Tory MP and I'm thinking, damn, there's already this narrative out there of we're either going to lose the next election or we're going to get absolutely battered in terms of the current majority. I think most current thinking is we're just going to lose. So then have one, maybe two, maybe even three by-elections that we either lose or get majority slashed in, it makes all of the news reporting and polls, it makes it real. And in my mind, I'm thinking that is then going to drive people even more to think that we've got even less of a chance when it comes to a general election. But the fascinating thing, the reason why I've conflated these two issues is the open censure that Sunak has given Johnson over his resignation. As opposed to what happens the other side of the Atlantic with Trump. And let's put the two issues. Obstensively, Boris Johnson has resigned as being an MP. He has resigned because he had parties in 10 Downing Street which were against 
COVID rules, COVID diktats, which he and his government wrote for the rest of the country. So when they were saying that people couldn't get together and and mingle, that's exactly what he was doing in 10 Downing Street. And not only doing that, but having parties. And there's a photographic video evidence that this happened. And the reason why this was a long-running scandal in British politics is because at first he denied it. At first he said, no, it didn't happen. Then the pictures came out. Then he said, oh, but he didn't realise what the rules were. In effect, it was the cover-up was much worse than the crime, to go back to the whole kind of Watergate analogy. So what ostensibly has brought him down is having drinks in 10 Downing Street with groups of people. And I compare and contrast that with the legal jeopardy that Trump is in, in terms of he took national secrets, government-sensitive documents, was asked to take them back, and he didn't. And then, we don't know when the arrangement is going to be, but he has a legal case to answer for trying to subvert the election result in Georgia, then there is, it just goes on and on with Trump. Yeah, let me jump in with two others. There is a 34 count indictment in the state of New York involving falsifying records to cover actors, $130,000 payment to a pornographic movie actress to cover up their dalliance. And then, of course, he was found liable after a full trial very recently for sexual assault and defamation involving this attack on a woman many years ago in the dressing room of a fancy department store in New York City. And that is not an accusation. That is a full trial in which a jury found that he sexually assaulted the plaintiff, that he defamed her for claiming she made up the story and he didn't know her. And in breaking news yesterday, the judge reopened the case, allowing Jean Carroll, the plaintiff, to amend her complaint to seek more punitive damages because very shortly after the verdict, indeed, I think it was either the same day or the next day, Trump was on TV and on social media saying the whole thing was made up and she's a liar and he doesn't know her. And she went back to court and said, I think this entitles me to more punitive damages. And the judge just ruled yesterday that the judge agrees. And so we don't just have accusations of a very grave nature. We have a jury verdict. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the question is, how can somebody survive and still be a viable political candidate with this level of legal jeopardy around them in stark contrast to Boris Johnson? Both these figures are both populists. Both of them have a connection to a section of the general public which goes away above and beyond party. I think it's fairly safe to say that Donald Trump is not a regular Republican by any stretch of the imagination. And both of these figures divide opinion as much as they have their supporters, that they massively have their detractors. And I was really struck by the Johnson's resignation letter, how Trumpian it sounds. And and in terms of victimhood, completely doing a carbon copy of the Trump playbook. But why is it, Steve, that the Republicans cannot divest themselves of Donald Trump. Is this something about the American political system or is there something else uh, which the Republican Party has been infected by Trump and Trumpism and they just can't quite get rid of it regardless of how egregious this person acts? They just can't seem to divest themselves of Donald Trump. I'll give two short answers. Short answer one is a lack of principle. I think you have Republican leaders and elected officials who easily could have flushed this guy down the toilet 20 times. He was impeached twice, for goodness sake. And they just don't have the character or principle to do it. Which leads to the second answer. I guess some would say this is all because of their constituents and primaries and the radical Trump base. But while I acknowledge that exists, there would have been many, many opportunities for Republicans as a collective, elected officials, powerful Republicans, to get rid of this guy. They've chosen not to do it. And those Republicans who have stood up and said, this man is unfit to be a dog catcher, yet alone president of the United States, uh, by and large, have been drummed out of the party, left the party voluntarily, lost elections. So given our primary system, given the political base, there needs to be unity. I think if Republicans as a group, the leaders in the Senate, leaders in the House, stood up and said, this man's unfit, they could do it. Acting individually, it doesn't work at all. Directly after January the 6th, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell did say that. Even Lindsey Graham said it. It is amazing how quickly it reversed. There was a moment in the immediate aftermath of their lives literally being it was, of course, reported at the time that Kevin McCarthy was on the phone with President Trump. In the immediate aftermath of that, some very strong statement. 
But boy, oh boy, did they reverse course fast. It was quite shocking. Corley's can we as Brits just claim some level of political maturity in that in our political system, we still have a thing called parliamentary standards where an MP or even a prime minister falls beneath them that we can call them to account and or that MP or prime minister actually walks the plank and says, I, I've got to go, as opposed to this modern phenomena, which seems to be regardless of what scandal you're involved in, you just tough it out. Are we just a little bit more gentlemanly in the UK? I don't think so. I think the parliamentary system does have its advantages in situations like this, but I don't think that's the whole story. So yes, it evidently is better, if you want to put it that way, in terms of more effective, let's say it's a more neutral term, it's more effective in terms of having a system where you can have a group of MPs investigate, make a report, recommend a sanction, and that sanction being an actual suspension from the legislature, and that triggering an immediate recall petition where that person can be kicked out of parliament, period. Because if Boris Johnson was still prime minister, obviously you can question the dynamics whether if he is still prime minister, whether the Conservatives would rally around him and reject the report, that's a different question. But the fact that mechanism is there, that even if he was still prime minister now, and this report came out now, and he didn't resign, and it and the poll process went through, he could be removed from office as being an MP, and therefore he would automatically no longer be prime minister. That is a theoretical possibility. You don't have that. That mechanism doesn't exist in, in America. Not because it's not a parliamentary system. You could counter that by saying, oh, we have impeachment. I guess you could say that, okay, impeachment, I guess it's a bit different because the bar is a lot higher. But you could counter that. Yes, there is something to be said about the system being more amenable to carrying out a sanction on somebody who has clearly done something wrong. Or I think the bigger issue here is, I think it's more to do with how they have engineered their base and their base of support. Boris Johnson, obviously a much smarter man than Donald Trump. But what Donald Trump has over Johnson is that he has his base is wedded to him with something of a more of an overarching political philosophy. I know that sounds just ridiculous to say the juxtaposed political philosophy and Donald Trump, but work with me. His pitch, his appeal is a lot more it's a worldview almost. Make America great again, America's this, America's that, we're losing, we're not winning. And then he and channel that down into different areas, whether it's the economy, whether it's overseas relations, whether it's the political system. Whereas Johnson's connection with his base, if you want to call it a base, really was Brexit. Yeah, Brexit done and make America great again. Yeah, one, I'd argue, is a lot deeper and resonates with people a lot more than the other. And it's a lot more enduring. Make America great again isn't fixed to a particular time in terms of actually carrying out that, could argue that for the next 50 years. Well, if get Brexit done, that had a time limit on it. Once we're actually technically out of the EU, that is, as a political slogan, it's null and void. It doesn't mean anything anymore. I think what you said there is spot on, right? That there is there was a shelf life to the two centuries, to the two things of which bring these two individuals to power. Make America great again. You could run that for a thousand years. Okay, and always harken back to the 1950s and whatever, and say that's the time when America, or whenever you want to. But Brexit 
And he said it was going to be like a microwave meal. And it was done, right? However, he had a thumping majority to get that done in, in 2019. You would think on the face of it, you still have a lot of political capital. The Conservatives have an what an 80-seat majority, a massive majority in, in Parliament. Yeah. And there there is a whole load of Conservative MPs who are only sat in Parliament because of Boris Johnson, because those red wall Labour seats went to the Conservatives. Conventional wisdom would say he still has the political capital, and he is maybe one of a few British politicians who stand above politics. Yes, he's a conservative, but people in Britain have a relationship with Boris Johnson, not just seen through the lens of politics. You can't say that for somebody like Keir Starmer. You can't at all. So why has his political capital been so brittle? Why has it evaporated so fast? So two things. It wasn't built on much. It wasn't built on some great vision. The foundations were weak. But at the same time, as you, you rightly say, an 80-seat majority is an 80-seat majority. That's a massive majority. It's the biggest majority in 40 years. But if you can have a million pounds in a bank, but if you put that in a bank account that gives you 0.1% interest and you don't then transfer some of that money into some great investment fund that will give you 5% a year, it's meaningless in terms of growth. So I think that's the difference. Yes, they've got a political capital. They've just not spent it. They've not used it. So you can have a 200-seat majority, but if you don't have any kind of vision, political vision, political mission, it doesn't matter, does it? Steve, we've now seen Mike Pence come out quite strongly and say that these are incredibly serious allegations that Trump has to answer for in terms of the indictment around the keeping of secrets. Chris Christie, his whole presidential campaign is predicated on being the anti Trump candidate saying that Donald Trump is not fit for government and that the Republican Party needs to look beyond Trump. Are we seeing Republicans actually get a backbone and actually call out the truth on Donald Trump? Nope. I think every statement I've seen, and with the possible exception of Christie, either does or doesn't acknowledge that the charges are serious, but virtually always follows on with a set of hedges questioning the special counsel, arguing there's a double standard because other people had documents in situations which are wildly different. So I don't think so. There's lip service to the idea that the charges are serious, but in most cases filled with qualifications, hedges, and ultimately statements which undermine the prosecution, which draw into question the validity of it, claim that it's a political witch hunt. Honestly, I would say not really, not at all. I must admit, I think it's weird that we have the opening shots of various presidential campaigns on the Republican side, and the vast majority of the runners and riders cannot be overtly anti-Trump. They can't take lumps out of it. Again, conventional wisdom would say that's the whole point of running a campaign, that you need to take down your opponents. You need to expose their weaknesses and then give America your vision. What type of Republican race are we going to have if 
at least three quarters of the field are scared to confront Donald Trump? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, look, I'm not a political consultant, to say the least. But it seems to me, if you accept the premise, I hate the premise, but if you accept the premise that it is politically stupid to just come out full throttle and say that Trump is utterly unqualified to be president, is dangerous, and the indictment demonstrates that there's a real problem. Yes, he's entitled in a court of law to a presumption of innocence, but this is a political campaign. We're electing a president, and there's enough in that indictment that, yeah, not to mention the Gene Carroll case, which I mentioned earlier. If people decide that is something that Republican primary voters, because so many of them are in this cult of Trump and don't want to hear a bad word about Trump, I would say, if they're going to vote for Trump no matter what, then I'm not sure why you're speaking to them anyway. And what I would also say is, I think the political strategy, again, I'm not saying this is the principled strategy, would be to say, this man's unelectable, regardless of how much you like him, regardless of how much you think he did good things as president. And even if you think that this prosecution is a witch hunt, which is absurd, he's unelectable. The latest polls I've seen are are before all of the recent news coverage of the Florida federal indictment. He's a, his unfavorables are about 15 points higher than his favorables. Call it high 30s versus mid 50s. And I think Republicans should at least be arguing that the man is completely unelectable and he cannot win a general election. Uh, again, that's not a principled stance. But it's at least a stance taking him on and arguing why you ought not to vote for him as a Republican primary voter, because he will never win the general election. Yeah, but that's only because polls are rigged, Steve. They're rigged. And now is the time, if you're in the audience, and I've somewhat overrun with time for you to throw your hands up in the air and run up on stage, make a statement, ask a question, and basically just join the conversation. Shashank, uh, welcome, sir. What is your question? What is your point? Not a question, it's an observation. The context that a lot of people say about Boris giving the ATC majority, that is actually only half truth. Some people would argue that actually it's not even truth at all. Because if you think about the context, Brexit happened and there was at that time another character, Nigel Farage, who had taken tons of votes from conservatives. And by the time 2019 came along, UKIP had completely decimated and the entire stock of UKIP, indirectly supported by Farage and all of that UKIP gang, fell in the lap of conservatives. And Boris, being Boris, he managed to take entire credit that it was due to him that they got all the seats. That majority was basically people who did not have another home. They would never go to labor. And they were strong enough that they would not defect to Lib Dems. And they literally just sat in the lap of Boris, right place, right time. And it was nothing to do with his doing that he got 80 seat majority at that time. That's my one point, though, by the way. Fair point. Fair point, indeed. And you're right. There has been a realignment of the far-right vote in the UK with the demise of UKIP. Whether we want to say it's because Brexit was delivered and or because of the bankruptcy of far-right politics after that. You could really argue that what we've seen in the Conservative Party is 
a realignment of the Conservative Party with the more libertarian fringe against the moderates. And Sunak seemed to be walking into the centre of the Conservative Party. And one thing which had brought this polarisation of the Conservative Party to the fore has actually been Brexit. Those Conservatives who, on the one hand, look backwards to look forwards, talk about the days of the empire and Britain being a global power, aligning themselves with more libertarian Conservatives who just want to wipe away super state structures of which the EU is part of it because they see it as being undemocratic and economically against the interests of Britain. And fundamentally for the last 20 years, British policy has been dominated by that conversation on the right of the political spectrum. But I'm going to expand on that after we speak to Eugene from Ukraine and then Martin, and then we'll start to wrap this up. Eugene, over to you, sir. Or Eugenie, sorry. No, it's okay. I like the title of your room. It made me think that, that Trump and Johnson are similar in one way. For example, they both look what I call extravagant. I think they look strange. They have strange hair and they are not, uh, they are a bit unusual for a politician. But on the other hand, they are so different in their characters because their personalities, for example, Trump is such a terrible human as a, per- as a person. He is a bully. And to be honest, I don't know much about Johnson because I don't follow British politics so closely. But you know that Ukrainians do like Johnson a lot. He has been many times in Ukraine and at least he looks like a nice, kind person. But he definitely looks much kinder than Trump. And also I wanted to to respond to Steve's point that Trump cannot win. He is unwinnable that I wish it was true. If Trump is unwinnable, then we should root for him in the Republican primaries. We should hope that he wins the, the nomination and he will run and, and he will lose. <laughs> but I, unfortunately, I don't think it's the case. He still has a chance because the way American election is constructed, you have electoral college. I think people don't know that Trump won by a very small margin like 70,000 votes. Also, Biden won by even smaller margin, by 42,000 votes. So it's like the election in America so close that like both candidates can win easily. Callies. Just to turn what Eugene was saying, and I think what he was referring to, the numbers in terms of Biden, So if I remember rightly, he's correct, and it's the differences between, I think, Pennsylvania... Wisconsin and I want to say Michigan. There were three states, basically. Those three sort of flip states. It was the total number of voters that he got over Trump in those states. It was something like what Eugene said, only like 40,000, 50,000. So, I mean, I think that's what he's referring to in terms of the gap between those sort of three marginal states. Just following on from what you were saying then. I think another difference here is, yes, technically we are a two-party country. But I think having those other... The other random little parties that we have and that America doesn't have. I think that does have an influence in terms of, at least when it comes to, I guess, politicians, how they push general elections, if not the intervening period. I think that makes a difference too, considering S&P, Lib Dems to an extent, especially various parts of the country. The UP, as we saw, they were pivotal for Theresa May in 2017. So I think that's another key difference. The fact that, yes, we're a two-party system insofar as the Prime Minister is going to come from one of two parties. But we do have all of these sort of smaller parties that 
you know, to, to one degree or the other, do make a difference when it, at least when it comes to his political calculations in a way that doesn't make a difference in America because they just don't exist. The Libertarian Party, the Green Party, they are, for all intents and purposes, completely irrelevant. Putting aside partisan reasons for being against the Electoral College, we do now have a serious problem in the country where, you know, back in 2000, the popular vote difference in the presidential election, which was ultimately decided by the Supreme Court in one of its worst opinions ever, was 550,000 votes. In 2020, the popular vote difference was 7 million votes, right? Biden got 7 million more votes than Trump. And yet, as has been pointed out, if you do it on a state-by-state basis and you look at the states that tipped the election to Biden, he won by about 43,000 votes. Trump, in 2016, won by about 78,000 votes, even though, again, popular votes, many millions more voted for Clinton. This is not good for America, right? We do have a system, you could argue, where there's a sort of minority rule, and that's putting aside issues of disenfranchisement, voter suppression, gerrymandering. We have a lot of structural problems that are not good for our democracy. I don't know what the solution to all those problems is, but this has become a really big problem in the United States. And if, and as I understand a parliamentary system, obviously, in the way the elections are done, structurally, you're not looking at those same kind of problems. No, we're not, though. I think our system is transparently fairer. However, if you are Scottish, one of the reasons which is pushing towards independence is the fact that since the late 1950s, Scotland has always voted for the Labour Party and they find themselves saddled nationally in terms of the UK with various conservative administrations. So one of the things going for Scottish independence is actually a very similar thing that they never get the party that they vote for there, or hardly ever, considering that England more often than not votes right of centre. But that's a slightly different issue, but but there is an analogy in the UK. Just before we come on to Martin and we start to wind the room down, I think the biggest difference is media, that in in the UK we do not have right-wing political media which has... the hold over politics in the way that you have in the US. That Fox News, One America, et al. machine exerts a disproportionate power over American politicians so that they are scared to talk the truth. With the Fox and Dominion case, that was writ large, where um, the Fox News management and pundits knew that the election was not stolen, but they very cynically said, that's not what we believe our viewers want to hear. So they continued to at least pander to the lie, if not to peddle it. We don't have that same ecosystem in the UK. GB News is very new. It's tiny. Nobody watches it. It literally has ratings of zero. That is fundamentally the difference between the two political cultures. Because if you ask, if you have media who will just keep peddling the lie and politicians who won't call that out, then you have perverse outcomes 
as we are getting. But Martin, you're somebody who spends a lot of his time in the UK, but you're from the US. What do you think, sir? Do you think what I've said shines some level of light on maybe the political differences between the US and the UK and maybe the reason why Donald Trump can still be a viable candidate to be president, considering is in this amount of legal jeopardy? Or maybe you've come up on stage to say something else. The mic is yours, sir. I was wondering who Martin is. <laughs> Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, mate. So sorry. I love it. <laughs> sorry, Marvin. Oh. I'm poking at you from across the globe here. No, on a serious note, I came up on stage because I wanted to highlight what I think is a truth for Trump and is a truth for Tucker. The agenda that they have is to utilize their leadership position and to leverage it to obtain whatever it is that they want at all costs. Trump could give a shit about you as an American. He does not care about baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, or Chevrolet. What he cares about is if you have fear and that he can add fuel to that fear. So he galvanizes something that probably would not exist if he didn't lead the effort. This is a classic tactic that's used or strategy that's used. Because what he really wants is he wants to get elected and he wants to run the country the way that he wants to run it. He can give a shit about middle America. He can give a shit about his MAGA supporters. They're not sitting back mad because immigrants are coming in or mad because there's a trans person here or there. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But I guarantee you this, the fact that he gets on stage and fuels it, and then Tucker gets on stage and fuels it, now you start to have the establishment of team dynamics. And that is where the problem is good an analysis of any but only time will tell as to how much longer we have to run on the trump show in the u.s it appears that in the uk that the johnson show could well be at an end though he did poignantly say this is the end of me in parliament for now but it's hard to construct a path back for him at the moment and especially as his crowning achievement brexit is now seen, I think we can pretty much say universally, as being a economic, if not also political, disaster. So the one thing that Johnson is known for, six out of ten Britons are now saying it was a, a catastrophic mistake. And maybe the next general election not only will wipe away the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party which he brought to power with an 80-seat majority, but also will wipe away the remaining Brexiteers so that the election after that, we can actually look at having a rational relationship with Europe again. So maybe this is the death throes of Trump and Johnson, two populist leaders who ostensibly have come to power during peculiar circumstances politically. Thank you, Steve Crone, for being with us and helping us to digest and understand the legal jeopardy that Trump is under. Thank you to Corleys, my, my good friend from Manchester who stepped into the breach, not even knowing that he was going to be point person for Mid-Atlantic recording this podcast because I got my timings wrong and our journalist Mick Bright has probably sat at home eating crumpets instead of being on stage. Thank you to you, Jenny. Thank you to my friend Marvin. 
who I've met on more than one occasion. So the fact that I called you Martin, slap wrist for me. And thank you to the others that came up on stage. Good people, don't forget, we always say this, but left of centre politics is right thinking politics. But we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters, but we try and meet with them in the commons, the common space which all democracies need, which is where people can agree to disagree. But we also do try and bring not only our emotion and our righteousness to that argument, but we, we try and bring facts and rational argument. And if you have fact and rational argument, ultimately you will prevail. But sometimes that path to victory is somewhat hard and winding. But we have to stay on the course. And also stay on the course to admit the truth that in the last 40 years, neoliberal politics have actually failed in the West, that we've had rising levels of inequality, whether it's in the United States or in the UK, to be able to get back to some level of equilibrium where all people of all economic stratas can actually strive and thrive in our communities. So that's us, Mid-Atlantic. Again, thank you, Steve, Corleys, Eugenie and Marvin for coming up on stage. And there you go. That is us. If you want to write me an email, you can write me an email at royfield at gmail.com. That's R-O-I for India, F-I-E-L-D. If you want to tell me that I am a progressive shill, I will answer your email. Thank you to all those people who are writing reviews for the podcast. We have bumped up a few notches on those iTunes charts, and I thank you for that. But take care. Look after yourselves, and we'll see you all again soon with another rip-roaring, barnstorming episode of Mid-Atlantic where we look at US and UK politics. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.